everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14 Pro with the incredible camera. So, people currently listening to comedy podcasts, and people listening to political podcasts, and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts and it's ruling their lives. The point is, everyone, new and existing customers. Ask how to get up to $800 off the new iPhone 14 Pro with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or our stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. A little something something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in opinions. We do that in every episode too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessional. So if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In part two of this podcast with youth, we look at his life as a sought-after producer, his work with Durga McBroom in Blue Pearl, and working with Paul McCartney, amongst others. But first, he continues to talk about how art and music fit together for him. I'm a screenwriter, and obviously right. when you when you write, you're writing often from the themes that have been important in your life. And for me, identity has been a big theme. And, you know, you talked about the uh, the sort of creative uh, uh, impetus that you've got for certain areas in your life. But at the same time, pain or the themes that come from pain play a role later on in your life. Have you ever looked at and identified where you generate your ideas and your creativity from? Very good question again. Um, I have, I mean, I've done psychotherapy. I've done a lot of self-development. I've explored uh, spirituality in various ways. I lived in India for 10 years, you know, Um, and I have uh, attempted to unpack that a bit. and, and I've got some good results from it, I think. But it's this cliche, isn't it? It's like, I was saying this about a young singer who was here this week. I said, did you have an unhappy childhood? She said, not really. I said, I said well, I asked because, you know, there's a cliche that says if you're an artist, if you, you know, if you didn't have an unhappy childhood, you've got to invent it because you're not going to get very far with that because it is the main rock face scene of, of inspiration for people. But of course you could argue, you know, everyone goes through a certain amount of existential angst and trauma from just being alive, you know, um, and being born into this world. Uh, and what a world, uh, whatever it is. And actually sometimes, 
yeah, the more normal. Morning, afternoon, champ. That's my eldest son. Uh, yeah, well, my only son, actually. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, so I think you have to draw upon that. I mean, but I had my fair share of uh, unhappiness and angst as I was growing up um, with the turmoil and uh, despair of my family splitting up and stuff. But I could have been much, much worse. I, I tend to focus on what on the good things and... I'm grateful for those, you know, but certainly I remember coming back from boarding school once and I, my mother hadn't known that I'd uh, learned to play guitar and I'd written this song. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'd written this song for her and uh, she was doing the ironing and I said, stop a sec, mum, listen to this. I pulled out the guitar. I said, oh, I wrote this the other day and I wrote this song. And I kind of looked up and she was like, doing the ironing. And I said, uh, and she said, yes, that's lovely, darling. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, carried on, completely oblivious. And I learned, I thought, oh, she's, you know, I accepted then that she wasn't going to be that mother that was totally interested or obsessed with what I did. She had her own life and her own agenda. And and she very kindly helped me grow up, you know. So I, di I didn't really ask for her approval after that much. And, of course, my stepfather, was always he was a bit of a jazz bluff. He played jazz piano a bit, but he was always... He was always very self... Uh, tough on himself. He would never say he was very good or that he could ever do it professionally or for public. He was very self-depreciating as was my father about his painting. My father was a fantastic artist, painter. He'd gone to Birmingham Art School. Um, and he always dismissed the notion of him being an artist as, as that he would never be talented enough to do that or be that. That always shocked me, actually. Was that a generational um, thing? I mean, maybe. Maybe it's that don't think you're better than anybody else thing, from, which comes from the working class, actually. Um, but he broke out of that. He became middle class. He lost his accent, joined the army, got into business. And, you know, he was a face and a beautiful model wife. I mean, they had an idyllic life in the 60s and a very happy one for many years. I remember as much joy and happiness there. But there was also a lot of problems and it, it disintegrated, wasn't sustainable. And uh, so, I mean, he was always very encouraging. Later on with, with the band, I had... I got the first band I was in, Rage, I, I turned up for an audition. I'd never played bass. And there were 11 guys auditioning in the corridor, waiting to go in. And they were all in their mid-20s. I was 15, pretending to be 18. I, was, I still hadn't been turned 16 then. Because you know, my birthday is December. I'd left school 77. I was still six. I was still, well, maybe I was 16. Where did maybe that self-confidence come from? to be able to I do that. Know. I mean, that's a really difficult thing. I don't think, again, just coming from boarding school, I'd left boarding school, I got a job. My old man got me a job in the south of France as a, a worker on a campsite, a British-run campsite. I met some guys there. That was a good rite of passage of finding out who I... I'd already been on my own for four years anyway. So I kind of knew who, what was happening. But I was... I thought there was more potential in art than music. I, I really didn't think... 
I could ever have the talent to be as good as Dylan or Jimmy Page or my heroes. But then punk rock, rock happened. And I came back and I thought, wow, I can do that. I love this. And actually, it's not over. It's just starting. So I thought, I'll try it. See if I join a band. So I just answered an ad and got that gig. Two weeks later, I was supporting the adverts and the Saints on a 32-day theatre tour of the UK. And I got, um, you know, I'd... Uh, you know, the, the guitarist had a spare bass guitar. I gave him some line that my guitar had been stolen at a party because I'd never played bass before. So he lent me this, this copy Rickenbacker and that got nicked um, just before the tour or something. And my dad, I said to my dad, oh, my bass is nicked. I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, I'll lend you 200 quid to buy you a proper one, which he did. He said, but you have to pay it back, um, which I never did. <laughs> um, but, but and I got a Rickenbacker bass, and that was fantastic. And after that, the band split up. After that tour, I joined another band, and I did, you know, I did my time in the trenches, sort of learning how to play a bit. How important has it been to actually, um, let's say, combine or have this sort of combination of different creative aspects of your life? Because, um, you know, I, as I said, I write, um, but if I just wrote, I don't think I'd have as much input as when I listen to music and when I do other things, you know, even sometimes drawing or whatever, and it has a sort of complementary aspect to my creativity. How important has that been to you throughout your life? Because it sounds like you've done, you know, yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's very important, very it's essential. Absolutely. Because, you know, I didn't go to art school, but I didn't stop painting or, or doing art. And I carried that on throughout. And then in around 20, I had a very good friend, American friend, Max Carrot, who was a poet. And he got me into poetry. And I started writing poetry and reading great books. And that was really important as well. Now, I, th I know it's quite rare to see artists that are multidisciplinary, multi... Uh, uh, genre as well. I mean, but there was one, there was a guy actually who was amazing inspiration who died this year, Greg Gilbert from the band The Delays that I produced in the noughties. Um, and he was an amazing artist. He was an amazing painter, an amazing drawer. Did this really detailed photorealistic drawings of, of people and things in biro. And, and amazing songwriter and musician and guitarist. I think sometimes I think I've not been, I've not really gone for diagnosis, but I think sometimes I, I'm definitely must be on the spectrum. Uh, and, and maybe that multidiscipline thing for me is a bit of, of a, a reflection of my ADHD or something like that, um, where I just can't stop. And I, and I have to go from, you know, one to another. Um, but it's also, I think, just part of my zest for life and my wanting to understand and penetrate things. I mean, the reason I uh, I got into music was because I was a huge fan of music and I wanted to unpack that and go inside that a bit and learn about it and joining a band was a way to do it. I never thought I could be on an equal of some of the things that really inspired me, but 
I've made records now that I think are of that. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I spend a lot of time doing drawings and paintings and music, and I have to balance that, otherwise I burn out. And in, within those, I have to chop it up and change it, because I'll burn out uh, if I'm just doing rock records. So with music, I'm totally multi-genre, and that's quite rare. But with also my painting... It, sorry, how important is it for you to know the personality that you're working with when you work with them as a producer, because you've worked with oh. such a sort of diverse amount of people yeah, yeah. that yeah, it just yeah. seems strange. It can't be everyone that you, you musically like, but you must have a certain understanding of them. Well, generally, it's something I like. I mean, I'll, I'll find something I like in them, but I do have lines where if I really don't like the voice, I won't work with them. But um, that's not true. Sometimes I have, and I've and it's worked out good. But uh, yeah, no, I spend most, you know, the first hour or two on a session with a, a new artist, just talking and drinking tea, and talking about music and them, and and finding out where they are. Because I have a theory that the music only reflects the vibe that's going on with the people that are making it. It doesn't determine it. It reflects it. So. You want to find out who those people are a bit and who you, where you are, where you're at. Um, and, and by doing that, it naturally and gently goes to where it should. Um, if you just, I mean, sometimes there's no rules. I mean, you can just jump in cold and just make something and they come up with something straight away and it's amazing. Uh, uh, if it's not, then there's other, you know, you, you've got to spend time to understand those psyches that are around and in the room. Do you have uh, preconceived ideas though when you meet people? Because if you meet someone like with yeah, you know Paul McCartney, with who you've worked with, and they've they have such a legacy to go along <laughs> with them, uh, is it difficult then to drop those preconceived ideas and just think for the moment about what you're going to be doing uh, that day and what you can both contribute to each other? I'm very intuitive in my process, you know, throughout all the different ways of approaching it. Um, so, of course, you have preconceptions. As soon as you meet someone, whether they're famous or you've never heard of them or met them before, you're making uh, value judgments, hopefully not too harsh, on their appearance, what they're wearing, what kind of glasses they're wearing. I mean, I'm looking at you now. Like Joe, I was working with Geordie and Killing Joke last week. He goes, um, we talk about someone, and this guy wears thick frame glasses. He goes, Yeah, my mother always told me never trust anyone with thick frame glasses, they're always dodgy. I was like, Oh, really? So people have their own concepts of what life and reality is to, to you know, definitely define, determined the template as kids and their parents. I mean, it goes generation family influences through the generations you know um but you know i mean i think you have to unpack that carefully and you know not make projections on that i mean i tend to focus on my own projections um, my own body language what i'm saying rather than judging theirs but at the same time i'm trying to get to know them I'm, and i'm always surprised i'm always fascinated by people. I, I talk to people on the street, strangers all the time. I, I find people fascinating. You think of all the tears of joy and sadness 
that have been in their lives and, and they're standing in front of you. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, I try not to judge them, uh, you know, other than, you know, what we're going to do musically or if there's no, if it's just in general, I wouldn't judge anyone anyway. I'd just be open, I, I, I'd like to think. But, um, but uh, you know, there's a paradox there as well because, I, you know, every extrovert is an introvert and every introvert is an extrovert. So I have this extrovert side where I will talk to strangers and anyone in the street and enjoy those conversations. But I'm also very private and I, I like spending a lot of time on my own. Um, I think that's come from boarding school. I mean, that certainly hasn't helped my relationships in life. I think, you know, it's like my intimate relationships because, you know, I, I do like being solitary often and I often work best solitary. Nevertheless, I need intimacy in that contact and I'm, I like to love hard and, 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 and fully experience that. But I've, I've just, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I still think I, uh, I work better solo most of the time, you know. <laughs> so it's that, that's not something I'm, I, that's on my agenda. Often. I mean, I've had partners who accuse me of being very intimate, avoidant, and, uh, and, and, and I, there's a certain point where I, when I get very close to someone, I might push them away. Um, you know, I've had to deal with that with therapy as well. But... In hindsight, I mean, sometimes that's been a blessing, you know. <laughs> and you know, it's brought me to where I am now, anyway. So I don't regret it. But I've had to accept certain things about the way I am, um, and not have the expectations that many people would in terms of what their life goals are. Mine, mine. How much of the you know you talked about your music teacher and the way that uh, he communicated with you, um, and. I just wondered how much that influenced you in the way that you communicate with other people in the studio, because it does sound like you sort of took a lot of that on board and used it in your life in this very open and generous way. Well, I do. Yeah. 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 I think I, I, there's a certain point where it's really important to walk out, leave the studio and let them get on with it. You know, and that's where does that point come? It's just something you just, you just have to develop a sensibility for to know when that point is it's not specific um in any way but they're, they're, that point will come you know um but i'm in in many ways i'm different from david company because i'm i interact with them much more than he did with me and i get much more involved and question their intentions with the material and song and the parts um and i can be very challenging in that way as well so um, but there are points where I'll, I'll step aside and let it happen. Last night I went to see um, Carl Falconer, who's do a solo show, who's a singer with The View, and I worked with them about 10 years ago. And they were all like 21-year-old kids from Dundee. Most of them had lost their fathers by 21 from alcohol. It's quite a tough town, Dundee. And they were all, you know, they'd been championed by the Libertines and they were as hedonistic as the Libertines. And, and I came in on their third album and kind of said, look, you, I think you've got to like, take this a bit more seriously. You've got to really sober. I don't, want, I don't want a hard alcohol in the studio. I don't want class eight drugs in the studio. And what we're going to do is we're going to get creative. And I got them 
painting and drawing and doing sculpture and uh, making models. And they, they're all like, what the fuck? What the fuck's this guy doing? <laughs> but last time when I saw Kyle, uh, there was a couple of uh, members of The View there. They all came up and gave me a hug and they were like, oh, man, you can't understand how life-changing that was for us as a mentor. You know, we've, we've come through, we've got, gone through our addictions and rehabs and we've come out in a good place. And you were the first sort of producer to really focus us in that way and give us a light at the end of the tunnel and stuff like that. And I was like really blown away. Um, but it did, you know, it did work for them. And it's really, really beautiful to hear them say that. Have you also um, gone so, through your own addictions and and, and stuff and, be there, and have to dealt with that? And how do you look at drugs in terms of creativity? Yeah, well, yeah, I have had my addictions and I do have my addictions. And one of them is this cup of tea. I mean, if I don't have a cup of tea in the morning, I get very grumpy, you know. <laughs> um, but also the smoking, I mean, I, I, I've never, I've not really got into like a hard drug addiction or whatever, but I do like to smoke tobacco, marijuana, oh, it's just my choice, you know. But I can't deny I, I'm addicted to it. Um, I can go without it for a few hours, but not for long. And uh, but it does. Um, I've had to sort of really be quite strict with myself on that, on terms of using filters and organic tobacco now, because I'm in my sixties. I'm smoking almost thirty years. I did stop in my thirties for a couple of years, but that drove everyone nuts. Um, but uh, yeah, I've had I've had to look at that and. Uh, you know, I do have an addictive personality. I'm a collector. When I was at LVS, I became a train spotter as a hobby, uh, which can seem like a really inane hobby. You stand by the tracks with this book of diesel electric numbers and wait for them to go past and cross them all. It could take days to find one, you know. Um, but I was telling this to my luthier, my guitar restorer, fixer guy a couple of days ago he said yes but you forget that's probably what gave uh, you the opportunity to train your mind to really observe and concentrate on little details and I said oh I never thought of that but I thought yeah you're probably right um so I don't know but I, I collect things I collect books vinyls all kinds of things so I have this I have to be careful because I could be a hoarder very easily. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I do have this obsessive quality sometimes. I am with the music in the studio. I mean, jazz says when I'm in the studio and I've got an idea that I, I'm really convinced on, I don't let go. I mean, I'll be flexible, try other ideas, but I'll come back on that until we find, do it. And I, it's true, I, I, I will be relentless in that. Um, and I think that comes from all of that. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14 Pro with the incredible camera. So, people currently listening to comedy podcasts, and people listening to political podcasts, and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts and it's ruling their lives. The point is, everyone, new and existing customers. Ask how to get up to $800 off the new iPhone 14 Pro with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or our stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply. That's one. Right. 
You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Is there a musical era or musical, an ethos of an era which you always go back to? I mean, you mentioned punk, and punk, of course, was an era where you could just join a band and just go for it and learn on the spot, as it were, and be really yeah. creative. So is there some sort of ethos that you always go back to and is that connected to a musical era? Well, punk was fantastic and certainly a big part of my life pulled me in, you know. But I had a problem with punk and that 99% of it was reactionary. And if you took the thing you were reacting against away, what were you left with? And, uh, and that was a problem for me. And actually, post-punk became more important for that because post-punk started to suggest alternatives and and other things that that weren't just reacting against the system of creating another system creating communities um and, I, and that was really important for me um and i suppose that most of that has been informed by the 60s uh summer of love and the beat poets and the the free thinkers of that psychedelic revolution of the 60s and people who who facilitated that throughout, like Terence McKenna, um, John Sinclair, John Lennon, uh, John Hopkins. I mean, I've been very lucky and privileged to meet many of those, and some of them became friends. Um, people like Greg Sams, Craig Sams, started the first um, microbiotic organic restaurants in London. Lee Harris, who started the first head shop in London. I mean, these were real pioneers. They were my war heroes. They were real um, people who risked getting incarcerated and arrested for providing everyone else with a bit of freedom, you know, to make their own choices. And, uh, you know, that still is a massive uh, North Pole for me that I navigate to a lot. I mean, Space Mounting is that in a sense, isn't it? That's what you've sort of created something uh, which to me, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I see it as a reference point to your school in terms of um, giving you sort of some sort of cultural or creative freedom. And you are actually giving that on. Um, is that well, how you I see it? No, not really, no. I mean, Space Mountain is an amazing facility and studio that I've built that I basically want to share, you know. So I have, you know, people, it's a commercial studio, clients will book it for yoga retreats or, or music albums, um, and I'll spend a lot of time there making records, you know, um, myself. But, you know, once a year, generally i'll open it up as a three-day festival and invite international artists and local artists to come together jam and and it's just a big social experiment really um it's an experiment in community as well it's already been fantastically successful on that level because you know people have met people they got married had kids left left their countries moved down there or left the there moved somewhere else you know and it's uh it facilitates uh uh, people's lives. I mean, that's what I see myself as, really, as a producer, as a facilitator, you know, and a mentor, therapist, referee, all those things. But essentially, I'm there to facilitate the art, and uh, and that means I will I will not be lecturing people about how to do it from the front of the room. I'll be at the back, assisting them, like David Carpanini did me did with me quietly, and encouraging them and. Um, and, you know, for years, one of the things I'm most proud of is 
I, you know, I've had studios for many years from, you know, the 80s. I had small studios, then I had a big studio at Brixton Butterfly, which, again, you know, that we provided free food. There were five studios. Anyone who was there and their friends were, were invited to have a, a, a communal meal. And I had a, uh, a couple of uh, Indian cooks every night. And it was like my idea of what Apple might have been in the 60s on a good thing and many things came together I mean, John whole genres of music came out of that place and I know it's very successful um you know and, and and training up engineers uh and assistants over the years of which you know most of them have become stellar stellar like in their success in their own careers um I think that's a real affirmation for me that the methods and process I use in working with people and, and teaching them uh, work really well. Um, though I've actually stopped short of going becoming a, a lecturer. I mean, I'm, I'm not educated um, to be able to do that. Anyway, I do do lectures. I get invited to unis and do lectures occasionally. I'm doing one for the Abbey Road Institute next week. Um, but, you know, um, I found the way I've done it, is probably been a lot more successful per, 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 from the ratio of people who have done it and with me than if I'd gone into teaching and academia. I don't know if that would have been as good uh, or as successful. Um, and it's one of those things that's hard to teach in an academic way. It's, it's, it's much better to teach in a and an apprentice way where they're actually working with you every day and you're training them up that way than um, just taking lectures and being told what a MIDI cable does, you know. Um, they can do that on, at home on YouTube these days. So I have reservations about academia, but I would like to get involved with it. Maybe later on, um, if a uni would be kind enough to give me an honorary degree, should have just given Jazz. I mean, Jazz's brother actually told me I should apply for... Um, Cambridge and Oxford did these poets in residence uh, sort of uh, bursary things where you get a house on the on the grounds and you have to you have to give a few lectures a year, but you can go to any of the lectures and you can use the libraries and stuff. I'd love to do that uh, for a year, I, I, but I would consider going into education because obviously there's you know there's a there's a lot more career prospects there that, than there are in music production these days because people don't buy music. But um, that's changing as well, so I don't know. You've worked with so many artists over the years and obviously you just know jazz from Killing Joke, but you've, been, you've worked with so many artists over the years. I just wonder what you hope that you have given them that they can take away as a human being, not necessarily oh. in terms of musically, but as a human being, what you think they may have walked away with that's been useful in their lives? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? And that's actually not for me to answer, but for them, really. But what I'd hope they'd take away from the experience of working with me is um, opening their boundaries and uh, enlarging their spectrum of taste and understanding of, of, of music, or music they found challenging, being able to understand that a bit better. Um, understanding people a bit better um, um, and, and essentially being helpful, you know. I, it's like sometimes I have engineers young, when they first start with me, and they say, oh, 
I said, I can tell there's a problem. I said, what's the matter? Like, the guy I work with at the moment, I've worked with like 12 years, Michael Rendell, is incredibly talented now. I mean, and self-realised. I mean, one of the best engineers I've ever worked with. And I took him on straight out of college, you know. And he was full of attitude and spunk and, you know. And there was one day he goes, he goes, I've got a real problem with this music. I just don't like this music. And I said, look, it's not about you. <laughs> it's about the artist you're working with. And there's always something in there you can find you like. And you just take that and add that and just try and help and facilitate that artist. You know, that's what that's what it is. And he said, well, I don't think the artist likes me. You know, I said, look, you're all wrapped up in your own world and what you think people are. I said, the art, one thing's for sure. That artist isn't even thinking about you, <laughs> let alone liking you or not. He's got his, they've got they've got their own problems. They probably had a fight with their partner or they had a management issue and they come. Nothing to do with you. What you have to do is be professional and, and remain neutral and uh, alert and uh, able to help and, and help where you can, you know, and, and not judge them like that. Or not even think they're judging you. And even if they are. So what? It doesn't mean anything. It's their process or their thing. You're, you're there just to help, just just help, you know. So that's, I hope they've learned a bit of that. <laughs> oh, they would have if they'd been with me. But, you know, oh, yeah, you can't. Pe people have their own lives, their own agendas. I've had a few assistants I've trained up and become artists, very successful, and they've never given me a single thanks, you know. And they're just totally wrapped up with their own world, and it's all about them. That's fine. They didn't learn much from me, but they obviously became very successful. But, um, you know, I think generally most of them have been, you know, very, um, you know, I get messages and letters and stuff all the time from people who I can't even remember working with them. And they were a tape up in Livingston 20 years ago. And they said, oh, you really changed my life, really helped me focus on what I wanted to do. And oh, great. That's, that's great. I mean, I, that's, that's really satisfying. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. There's yeah. no greater compliment, is there, really, than someone yeah. actually telling you that you've had an impact yeah. on their on their lives. So I want to end with Durga, because I've known Durga over the years, and she's an, an amazingly powerful person, a wonderful singer, and uh, yeah. opinionated and tough, and yeah. all these things that I always feel like a, a person should be. Um, what are you working with her on, and how is that going? Yeah, well, Turga really is a force of nature. Um, and uh, she's got this voice. She's in the possession of, like, an atomic bomb of a voice. She can almost shatter wine glasses with it. I mean, she is so loud. We had a huge success with uh, Take Me Dancing Naked in the Rain, which is the first song we wrote, which we did in 20 minutes. And, um, you know, we've, we've both gone on these parallel lives from that. That's still being good to us, that song. Um, in the last 10 years, about 10 years ago now, we reconnected and started working together and with a view of trying to make a Blue Pearl album. That hasn't been easy most of the time. I mean, we have such strong opinions and differing opinions on that. Um, 
And we've always had that on the first album. I remember on the first album, I'm like, look, we need another electronic trance one. She goes, I don't like, I don't really like dance music. I like Joni Mitchell. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're just at a top 10 here around the world with this template trance track. <laughs> so actually I regret in a way that I acquiesced to her a bit. And some of the, the on the first time there were tracks that I wouldn't have done, but she was so determined to do it. I went along with it and we shouldn't have done, we should have stuck to our lane and done a trance album then and it would have been massive. And the second album was even worse and that didn't even come out because of that, I think. And uh, nevertheless, we've both gone on, done our things and uh, I've, uh, and we've, we've made, I, can't, I think it's got to be over 30, 40 tracks we've written and recorded in the last eight years. Finally got to a point where I thought we got a single that, was nothing like Naked, but could be good for one of my labels. Um, some of it is really deep house, um, uh, euphoric house. Some of it's more eclectic, electronica. Um, you know, so far we hadn't had much luck, nor, and she'd been trying as well with her connections to get, a, a, you know, the dance album out um, or, or get someone engaged with it. And... I don't know, the universe just wasn't letting us doing it. So we agreed to do this one single, which I think is going to come out in the middle of next year. And from there, we'll take it from there. Meanwhile, whenever she's over, I get her in to do sessions and collaborations, and we may write a new song or two. And we'll keep pushing at that rock face. Um, so I'm hoping well, that will all come together next year. You know, I love her to bits. One of the great memories I got of was a couple of years ago taking her to Stonehenge for the solstice sunrise with my son. And we drove down in my uh, car and we, we, we caught this clear blue sky, epic, sublime sunrise at Stonehenge on the solstice. That does sound sublime. And if you want to listen to the podcast with Durga McBroom, the other half of Blue Pearl, that is already online. And it's a fascinating interview. But that's it for the podcast with the youth. Look out for another interview every Monday. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14 Pro with the incredible camera. So... People currently listening to comedy podcasts and people listening to political podcasts and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts and it's ruling their lives. The point is, everyone, new and existing customers. Ask how to get up to $800 off the new iPhone 14 Pro with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or our stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply.